Thanks for checking out this podcast presented by Minnesota's very own Ticket King. If you're looking for tickets for an upcoming game or event at TCF Bank Stadium, U.S. Bank Stadium, or XL Energy Center, visit TicketKingOnline.com or the link from the 1500ESPN.com sports calendar page. Ticket King has all your tickets for Minnesota football, plus all the concerts, all the theaters, and at all venues. Call 612-341-4141 or visit TicketKingOnline.com. The following is a 1500 ESPN Twin Cities production. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed saying touch them all. Way back and done. Touch them all, Joe Maurer. And now these guys are making it relevant to this year's Twins. It's a beautiful game. Now our two resident hardball nerds will attempt to touch them all on the week's news surrounding the Twins in MLB. Play ball. I didn't know they still had a team. That's baseball. Here's Phil Mackey and Derek Wetmore. All right, welcome to the Touch Em All podcast, in which uh, ordinarily with big news breaking, like Derek Falvey being named the not president of baseball operations, yeah, how about but that? it's it's the uh, so you got CEOs, you've got COOs, you've got CMOs and CFOs, right? And now you have a CBO, yeah, hey. the chief baseball operator of the Minnesota title. Twins, 33 years old. Um, this will not be a Derek Falvey intensive episode because we just did that last week, yep. actually. Uh, the news kind of leaked out last week. And so if you want the all-in Derek Falvey intensive episode, go find, I don't know what number it is, maybe you do, but last week's episode of the Touch em All podcast. Yeah, we basically dove in the headline. If you're just on the Googles, you search Derek Falvey is the right kind of hire for the Twins because we didn't or search Derek Falvey is a badass mofo who's yeah. about to blow everything. <laughs> right. up. We definitely I mean, we we arrived at that conclusion. I don't know that we ever said those exact words on the podcast, but we were kind of talking about how, yeah, is this a risk? Of course it's a risk. Yeah, like John the Twins had taking a, risk. John Heyman had a piece and very credible plugged in. Like if there's a Mount Rushmore of baseball insiders which is lame. But. There's not a Mount Rushmore no. of that. Thank God for that. <laughs> no. uh, John Hammond will be on it. And sure. he, it sounds like he was sort of reporting and giving his opinion in this piece last week and said baseball scratching their heads at why the Twins would hire Derek Falvey over Jason McLeod or J.J. Piccolo from the Royals. He might be underqualified. Well, there's certainly a chance that yeah. an organization that rarely hired key positions from outside its own pipeline there's a very good chance that they might whiff on this. Mm -hmm. I still think the attributes that they were looking for, they got a lot of those in Derek Falvey from what I've heard um, and just from sort of you know reading the tea leaves from afar. But there's a pretty good chance. This, this organization isn't used to hiring people in key spots from outside its own pipeline. So maybe they landed the next Tom Thibodeau and Scott Layden, which we think is going to be a home run for the Timberwolves. Or maybe they whiffed and it's going to be bad for five years and they're going to have to do it all over again. But I would... I would say I'm sort of 60-40 toward they made the right hire, but certainly not 90-10 because I don't know. I wrote when he was first hired. I wrote a five thoughts column on the first task that he has, right? I mean, his first 1A, I mean, he'll have to hire a staff, but he's got to fix Twins pitching. So we spent a lot of time on last week's episode talking about that, that sort of um, technical nitty-gritty of the things that Falvey needs to involve himself with early on this week for the end of the twin season 
R.I.P. By the way, pour one out for the 2016 hey, Minnesota Twins. They carry momentum. Yeah, two wins, right. a series win, right, a Buxton inside the Parker, Sano going deep, and Jose Barrios outdueling Chris Sale. Yeah, Can we just start the 2017 <laughs> season right now, baby? Yeah, but momentum is tomorrow's starting pitcher. So I'm not sure that uh, I, maybe it'll carry over. Who knows? Because Probably Irvin Santana starts on opening day. That's a pretty good uh, starting pitcher. And that's called a winning streak. A reference you won't get because you've never seen Major, Major League, League, which is amazing for a guy who's done like 80 episodes of a Twins podcast. Somebody sent me that clip, though, so I get it. Uh, I, I understand the cultural reference, much like all of the videos and movies that I haven't seen that you cats are watching these days. Um, this for the, for the end of the Twins season, I wrote a column, Five Things That Need to Change. I'm not expecting Falvey's going to read it. But he gets the clips, I'm sure. I think I think he's a subscriber on the email list. Yeah, he's probably he's probably on the five thoughts email already. It's a smart, smart decision. Good for him. Yeah. Knowledge um, is power. <laughs> the more you know. Then what would you call what ding, I do? Ding ding. I think that um I want this episode to focus on those five things that I wrote that need to change for the two thousand seventeen season. Because these weren't like I didn't say, you know, you can't put Miguel Sano in right field. Like, like, obviously you can't do that. That was a first guess mistake by the last regime. However however much Paul Molitor was involved in that, he also deserves blame for the idea that, well, yeah, I, got, I mean, we signed a DH. We got a third baseman. We got a first baseman. Yeah, actually, where Paul Molitor probably deserves more criticism is he's a, it never seemed like he was all in on the idea. From the get-go. Of Sano in right field? Yeah. You have to die on that hill if that's how you feel. If that's how you feel, you have to die on the hill. Yeah, but if you have say, one year of political capital? Well, he has more than that, though. Sure. I mean, he has political capital going back 20 years with the organization sure. and that's probably a good point. 40 years in the state. That's a good point. And he's known Terry Ryan for a long time. But, um, but yeah, let's let's dive into your five things that have to change for next year. Yeah, so I didn't do I tried not to go so, so micro with it because, like— Everyone who's listening to this podcast is nodding along saying, like, yeah, I know Sano can't play right field next year. They should get more outs. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like the that's twin. thing number one. Uh, number two, try to win more baseball games. Like, <laughs> number right. three, try to draw more fans. <laughs> uh, number four, don't have a season in which you have to fire your general manager. That's... <laughs> That's yeah. the first four right there. And uh, number five, uh, listen more regularly to the smart hosts of the Touch em All podcast. Subscribe, actually. It's easier. You get every episode sent to you. It's, it's just super streamlined yeah. process. It's like, it's like uh, a GM handbook in your earbuds. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, that, that. That handbook would quickly be recalled industry-wide. <laughs> um, so the things that I did try to focus on were – like may, maybe bigger picture of just like still some of them are obvious. I'm I'm not trying to say like this is obviously the blueprint. It's just look these are five things that I actually haven't seen talked about that much um, as as Twins coverage statewide sort of scaled back this season towards the end of the summer uh, and rightfully so and understandably so. Um, we just we we didn't see enough of the. Well, okay, this is really bad. There's a train fire going on over here, but here's what started the fire. How do you how do you make sure that next year's train doesn't catch on fire? <laughs> that that was the idea is with that the thing column. number one. Yeah, don't uh, don't keep, let your vehicle on fire. I was gonna say flammable objects need to be stored in uh, fireproof. Okay, this this got off the rails quickly. Um, but number one, 
in actuality was that the starting pitching needs to be better. Like, that can't be overstated. We've talked about it a lot on a lot of different podcast episodes. I've written, I think, thousands of words, if not tens of thousands of words this summer about root of the problem is terrible starting pitching. I wrote I wrote a column on um so, so it was something on on maybe on Byron Buxton's inside the park home run or something. Someone tweeted back at me. Well, yeah, but no one's talking about the underlying problem, which is the starting pitching. And it's like, dude, if no one's talking about that today, it's because they're tired of talking about it from the past six months, right? Well, and the past six years, yeah, six six. It was better last year, but seasons. Um, yeah, I think well, just to put it into context here too, from a, a number standpoint. The Twins allowed 213 more runs as a pitching staff than the team that they just plucked Derek Falvey from and the team that they're chasing in this division going forward from next year and beyond. Uh, The Indians allowed 676 runs. uh, Twins, 889. You can do the math, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's... That's like two and a, it's it's for sure one run per game and uh, pushing a run and a half per game in a in a game a sport where you're playing to like three four or five runs total over the course of three hours, so that's a, and then you start to parse it apart. Well, those are just runs allowed. That's you and I don't want to get too far ahead because I'm su- assuming some of these other things yep. might be in your five. But is it one hundred percent the pitchers' faults that they allowed that many runs? Well, maybe the pitchers were on the hook for ninety percent of those, but. You can improve 10% by just having Miguel Sano not in right field yeah. or by having Byron Buxton up for a full season playing in center field and not Danny Santana trudging around with a roadmap out there, right? If you want to take the easy, cheap shot, you could say also by not having Miguel Sano play third base. Wow. But yeah, that's true. I think that Miguel Sano, just to back off from my hot take there, I think that he has a future as an average or above average third baseman. Uh, some things need to change for that to happen. So I'm I'm not saying that he's always going to be a disaster at third base, but it's fair to say that he was a disaster at third base this year. That's, like, inescapable to me. Um, yes, you, you hit on one of my five, but let me first just finish with this. Now that we have a full season's worth of data, we can definitively say this. The Twins pitching staff as a whole is the worst pitching staff in baseball since 2008. The 2016 Twins are the worst, as measured by ERA, which I think is fair to do over a full season's worth of innings. It's the worst staff since the 2008 Mm. Texas Rangers and Baltimore Orioles both posted a 5.51 ERA. Wow. And, and of course, uh, the well actually or or the yeah but, Offense, or at least home runs, went through the roof this yeah. year. So totally. I'd, I'd like to see ERA plus. Yep, adjusted by era, by what oh, the rest oh, of the that, league is that doing. Was... No, that was standard ERA. Okay. And so part of the context of the league scoring going up definitely affects this. <laughs> I guess if you want the other quick cheap shot one-liner is that teams for the past eight years didn't get to tee off on <laughs> Twins 2016 pitching. How funny oh, would it be man. if one team's Suboptimal pitching staff just like warped the league run scoring. Does that also make Brian Dozier's performance even more impressive? He didn't he, get to face he, Twins pitchers. He hit forty, what, forty two, forty three, however many home runs he had, forty some home runs, mm-hmm. and he never got to face like Michael Tonkin. No, he didn't. <laughs> he didn't get to face Tyler Duffy or Hector Santiago. Get, get three 
plate appearances against uh, home run machines. Although he did get to face James Shields, so I think that kind of makes up for it. Um, J- James Shields wound up with I think an ERA over seven, maybe even over eight for the it season. Gross year. How funny was it in the final? Like six on the, the final weekend of the season. Bert Blylevin on the broadcasts talking about. Well, James Shields, yeah, not great numbers this year, but he's a workhorse. He's so great. And they also have, you know, some other good pitchers like, I guess, uh, Jose Quintana. It's like, dude, Jose Quintana is flying by in the left lane as James Shields is fixing a tire on the shoulder. We're, we're derailing here a little bit, but my, my favorite baseball misperception, maybe not my favorite, but like one of my top five or ten favorite baseball misperceptions is the value of a workhorse starting pitcher yeah, totally. with a crappy ERA. Well, he gives you innings. Yeah, but his ERA is five. Right, like yeah. Mike Pelfrey gives you innings. Kevin Correa gives you innings. Yeah, but I'd I'd, I'd rather have two thirds the innings from a really good pitcher and then hand off to a couple bullpen guys that I trust once every five days than to hand the ball off to a workhorse James. He he just takes the ball Big every day game, and serves it up over the middle of the plate yeah. at eighty five <laughs> miles an hour for someone to hit out of the ballpark. And not to not to just dog on him, I guess. Yeah, what, yeah there's a lot of negativity shots. coming got, out here. Well I just finished a coffee and now we're you know we're doing a season wrap podcast. Sorry, James Shields, you're taking the brunt of us watching twins baseball yeah. the last six months <laughs> going into the season thinking this might be a team that can do something special. Brutal. And they did, in fact, they do sure something did. special. Well, Worst pitching staff as measured by ERA since 2008. Uh, That needs to change. That was my step number one. You've already actually, without knowing it, Phil, alluded to two more things on my list so far. Let's fly through both. Let's first get to the blame also for that poor run prevention, to use what I think is kind of a nerdy term, um, and I love it. The defense was awful. Is this thing number two? Number two is inadequate fielding. I wrote a mixture of things like, you know, you could see the defense easily improving next year by just making some obvious decisions like not playing Miguel Sano in right field, like not having Oswaldo Arcia in left field. Uh, As much promise as I thought he showed maybe in spring training and thought, hey, here's a player who could help the Twins. Eh, four or five or 25 or 30 teams by now have decided, yeah, I don't know. Oswaldo Arcia just doesn't do that much for me. Um, so I could see it getting better. And with that being said, you look in the rearview mirror of the 2016 season, the defense was terrible. They led the American League in errors. And as you and I have probably talked about on multiple podcasts before, I don't even think the raw error total accurately reflects how poorly the Twins fielded. I think there are a lot of times where it's like Eddie Rosario threw a ball over a cutoff man and allowed somebody to take an extra base. Well, sometimes that gets counted as throwing error, and sometimes there are problems like that that are equally concerning that don't get logged in the book as an error. Okay, is that a scorer's fault? No, not necessarily. It's just the environment that we live in that there are some things that, by the book, technically aren't called an error. But that doesn't mean that they couldn't have been prevented and they couldn't have been improved upon. Well, let me let me add to that because uh, I'm going to answer my own question from earlier too. What percentage of the Twins allowing almost 900 runs this season is the pitcher's fault versus terrible outfield defense or just terrible fielding in general, whether it's errors or just lack of range? Well, the answer is it's very much both parties' faults. So I'll start with the pitching here. Uh, twins pitchers, according to Fangraphs, allowed the second-highest percentage of hard-hit contact. The Diamondbacks were number one. And there's not that wide of a gap between the best teams and the worst teams when it comes to hard-hit percentage. 
Uh, the Diamondbacks allowed hard hit contact on 34% of batted balls. The Nationals were the best at 28%. So there's only a 6% gap between the top and the bottom, Sure. which you might think, well, that's very inconsequential. Not over the course of a full season, though. When you start adding up every batted ball in a game and every batted ball, if you're allowing an extra batted ball or two per game as a hard line drive, that might lead to an extra run per game, which is huge over the course of a season. What about the fielders? Well, Twins fielders not only uh, collectively with the pitchers allowed the highest batting average on balls in play, they also had the third worst defensive runs saved mm-hmm. metric. Uh, we're getting way into the saber weeds here, so stick with me. But um, And this isn't an exact science. This is uh, very much imperfect. Uh, we're trying to evolve our defensive measurements. But this is a plus-minus number, defensive runs saved. So it includes range, it includes errors, it includes throwing errors, all kinds of things, right? Uh, the Twins were 49 runs below league average, meaning if you were to have replaced the Twins with what's a league average defense here? It looks like the Rangers had a league average defense okay. with the Rangers. They would have allowed 49 fewer runs as a team, just swapping out their fielders with the Rangers fielders. The Cubs were a plus 82, wow. meaning if you were to swap out the Twins defense with the Cubs defense, there would be a 130-run swing between the two with the same pitching staff. And now there's it's probably not that exact, but sure. but that's painting that's a picture the right there. Yeah, yeah. So wow. you so you go from losing 103 games to maybe even flirting with 500 if you just have the best defense in baseball behind that crappy pitching staff. Let's talk about Molitor at the end of the podcast, but I think we have to we I don't think that we can ignore his role or lack of a role in that. Let's let's just open it up for a discussion, but to to finish the point on fielding excluding the manager first. Um, the Twins, and we're diving into the stats weeds again here. Stick with me. The Twins staff had a 4.82 fielding independent pitching, FIP, and a 4.6 XFIP. So, look, there it wasn't a good pitching staff. No one, You wouldn't find anyone that would argue, yeah, but this would be a great pitching staff if it weren't for terrible defense. No, it was a bad pitching staff compounded with terrible fielding. Yes. I think that both of those problems sort of I don't know if snowballed is the right word but I do think that they combine sure. to create a bigger problem than otherwise would have existed um with that being said and this is like not all to be downer pessimistic but I think that the twins reasonably need to expect when you look at the totality of innings from the 162 games in 2016 I think they need to expect to play better at third base at shortstop, behind the plate, and in all three outfield positions. I mean, center field, you could maybe argue, hey, they had some good times. Yeah, but they also played Danny Santana there quite a bit. Um, and not quite a bit, whatever. There, there are improvements to be had at the margins at all of the positions I just mentioned. Now, how do you get those? Well, I don't know. That's part of the problem. Is Jorge Polanco going to be better at shortstop over a full season? Maybe. I don't know. But there are... Legitimate question marks there. Would Miguel Sano hold up, and would he be better for a full season at third base? Or will Trevor Plouffe be back, and will he be a better defensive third baseman and stay healthy for a full season? Mm, I don't know. Would Eddie Rosario be an upgrade over some Oswaldo Arcia, Robbie Grossman to mix in left field? That I do know. <laughs> yes, he would be. Byron Buxton should be an upgrade over, if he can play the full season in center field, should be an upgrade over what they've had. Yeah. Max Kepler... I think you could say the same thing. Putting Max Kepler out there, while he's been far from perfect, he's also been far from Miguel Sano level disaster. Yeah. Behind the plate, 
that's going to be interesting to see what they do. Probably going to have to go outside of the organization if I'm guessing right now as we sit here in uh, early October. But it, I think when it comes down to it, that's a lot. That's a very high percentage of your fielding that flat out needs to be better. You know what? This just popped into my head randomly. This is probably another. We should do a strike zone episode at some point, maybe this off season. Ooh, that sounds nerdy and Saw fun. Saw an amazing real sports, HBO real sports piece with Eric Burns and former uh, crusty old major league umpire Jerry Crawford talking sure. about Eric Burns is all in on electronic strike zone. He even umped a game with an earpiece in pitch FX in a minor league ballpark a few months ago. Okay. And Jerry Crawford's basically saying humans do a better job and like, no, they don't. But um, anyways, one of <laughs> your bias is showing. <laughs> one of the main things they brought up was yeah. Eric Burns was, was bringing out the catchers are the ones that are going to hate the electronic strikes on the most because a lot of their value is in framing pitches. If you can get a great pitch-framing catcher, and the Twins haven't really had that for a long time, if you look at some of the metrics like Kurt Suzuki and um, even Drew Butera was not a great pitch-framer, those catchers, if all of a sudden you have an electronic strike zone at some point in the next five years, lose a valuable you know, aspect of their game. But could this be the trade-off? Could stolen bases go down because catchers would no longer have to sit in a crouch sure. and frame pitches? Could catchers literally stand up and just catch the ball anywhere? Now, of course, you'd have to if, – if there's a pitch that's kind of low, you'd, you have to block it. Otherwise, the guy's going to get to second base anyways. But you could almost always be in sort of a ready-to-throw-someone-out stance hmm. with the electronic strike zone. You could let the ball hit you in the chest protector, <laughs> and it wouldn't matter because it's either going to cross the zone or it's not. It might make Juan Centeno happy. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Juan right. Centeno, whether he can frame a pitch or not, might be might be golden. All right, what's thing number three? Uh, thing Well, uh, let, me, let me skip around here a little bit. I'm going out of the order of the column because I want to talk about the thing that you mentioned. You touched on the bullpen. I think, and this just never really got talked about, at the beginning of the year when things were blowing up around, the, the walls were caving in around the Twins and the sky was falling, Kevin Jepsen was a big part of the problem. I think, and I wrote as one of my five things, the Twins need to have a better backup plan in case Glenn Perkins' health falters again next year. Wait, I'm sorry. Is this podcast being recorded uh, in October of 2015 or 16? Or 14. Yeah. <laughs> like, the, the idea that the Twins went into this season hoping— I, Look, I, I and I wrote this in the column, so I'll just regurgitate it here, but it's— it was puzzling at best to me um, that the Twins, did. they made one of two mistakes. And it's clear in hindsight they made one of two mistakes. And it's possible they made both of them. They either overestimated the percentage chance that Glenn Perkins would stay healthy and dominant for a full season. That obviously did not happen in 2016. Or they overestimated Kevin Jepsen's ability to fill in for him in the case that he did get hurt. Uh, I think they both. probably did both. It's both. On the Jepson front, that was a career season in 2015. Yeah, Never in his career had he pitched better than that. And and especially the, if you're talking his Twins stretch. He was even better than yes, he'd been in Tampa Bay. Exactly. And the, and the Twins have done this a number of times in the last five or six years, even probably going back further than that, where they'll look at someone and they'll project best-case scenario. Well, if Mike Pelfrey bounces back, if... If um, Glenn Perkins stays healthy, if Kevin Jepsen can repeat the season that he just had. If Miguel Sano can click can in right, right field. field. Rather than dealing in realities or 50th percentiles, you want to go deep in the weeds here, go look at someone's abilities, okay? 
when they're at their best, what does their 90th percentile performance look like? What does Mike Pelfrey, Mike Pelfrey's 90th percentile performance looks a lot different than Clayton Kershaw's 90th percentile performance, right? Just like uh, Mike Pelfrey's 50th, like middle of the road performance, if he just performs at sort of his, whatever his ability is, what would the average season look like for Mike Pelfrey? Well, it's like a a four and a half ERA Mm -hmm. in the National League before he even came over to the American League. Okay, so unless he pitches lights out and has a 90th percentile type season, you're going to get like a four and a half or five ERA. Kevin Jepsen gave you a 90th percentile according to his abilities season in 2015. Well, let's let's project him at like a, the 50th percentile and then evaluate our team. If he's the 50th percentile, if he's sort of the average Kevin Jepsen, is he a closer on a playoff team? No. Yeah, no. So that, that's, that was an easy first guess, but it's, it's even a more laughable second guess yeah. when you go back in retrospect. Perkins got hurt in the first week. Actually, he was hurt before that, but they, you know, he went on the DL in the first week. They later decided to shut her down. So let's just say basically his whole season was wiped out. Perkins didn't pitch. Jepsen blew up. They DFA'd Jepsen, and they scramble matched to try and fix the rest of the season. It just, it didn't, it was a bad plan, and it didn't work. It was a bad plan, but it turned out to be more disastrous than I think even I thought it would be. And, and I was critical of them all last winter for how they handled the bullpen. Um, if you want to think about it like this, this is going to get super nerdy and also a little like theoretical. And some people aren't going to like this worldview. But like, if I were doing a Twins podcast with Stephen Hawking, this is the kind of thing we'd talk about. <laughs> Which I I plan to do someday. That's a bucket list item. Yeah, I mean, as soon as his people get back to my people, I'm sorry, Phil, you're going to have to take an episode off. Let's just say there were 1,000 parallel universes, all playing out, like, relatively similar, but there's just difference of one tiny little thing here, one tiny little thing there, and that creates a different present and a different future going forward in all all these 1,000 universes. Why did we pick 1,000? I don't know. We're base 10. We just like to think in round numbers, and so it's 1,000, okay? Uh, Stephen Hawking might call that a small sample size. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he might. Okay. Well, I'm not going to do a million parallel universes because it's just too much computing power for my brain to try to handle. If there were 1,000 parallel universes running, and you set up the bullpen in this way, you're the twins. By the way, all of these universes have Major League Baseball because they're all substantially similar. Okay. And they do they all, all have electronic strike zones, or are they, are they sort of scattered? Or I do think they all that, have real umpires? Well, I haven't lived, actually, in all of them. Like, my present state self hasn't experienced all of them. You'd have to go ask a Derek Wetmore from that other universe. Sure. But I think there are probably two or three that, yeah, have so sort the, of gotten progressive. Oh, okay. So, so In one of them, Rip Manford's like, screw it. All right, we're playing football this year. <laughs> like, um, the Twins might have been okay in that. Kenny Vargas and, and Miguel Oh, yeah, Miguel Sano. They would have been yeah, good Byron tight Buxton, for sure. No question. The, the point I'm trying to make is, like, in how many of those universes would Perkins have gotten hurt? And now I don't know. Like I said, I haven't lived in all 1,000 of them. I'd have to ask Stephen Hawking and figure that out. But it's not zero, because we know in the one that we live in and we're recording a podcast in right now, Perkins did get hurt. It's pro- based on his last two or three years of just sort of grinding. And the fact that he's never had a major arm surgery makes him more likely at that age to, to – I, I think it puts – some people might say, well, you haven't had an arm injury in 13 years. You're in the clear. Now, I think that means you're ready to have an arm injury. Right flag. Well, you've, been, you've been throwing and your shoulder has been – your shoulder has been fraying potentially in your elbow. Um, so I would say, I, I'm, and Stephen Hawking could tell you if you yeah. get hold of him, but yeah. probably 
like 30 to 50% of those parallel uni- universes or universe I? Universes, yeah. <laughs> we don't have to get too complicated. Now, I, I will ask Hawking that if I do ever get a chance, but let me say two things quick on the Perkins point. One is that he got that clean bill of health when he went in, was it an MRI, two years ago, and they said, your ligaments look so clean, I can't believe you've been elbow. a major league pitcher. That was elbow. elbow. And it's totally different. And this is, by the way, this one we maybe not talking about enough. This is a major labrum surgery for Perkins, too. So that casts next season, in my mind, into question as well, which is why it's so important to have a backup plan. I think he'll pitch next season, but I think there's a, a much smaller percent, like but like probably a less than 50% chance he returns throwing the way he did Dominant before the surgery. Dominant all-star closer. Yeah. Well, let's just make up, just for the sake of argument here, and because we couldn't get Hawking on the phone, um, mostly for lack of effort, um, let's just make up. Let's say that in... 300 of those universes, Perkins doesn't finish the season as a dominant all-star closer. Okay, so 300. In those 300 universes, your backup plan is Kevin Jepsen. In how many of those 300 does he replicate the second half that he had last season with the Twins? I would argue it's not very many. Like, I'll say 50, and that's being super generous in my opinion. Now, in what percentage does he blow up, and is he terrible like he was this season and really cost the Twins real wins and losses early in the season? Maybe it's not that many. Maybe that's also 50. But it just so happens that one of those 50 universes in that 300 subset happens to be the one that actually played out and that we're actually living through right now and that we're actually experiencing. No, it'd be, the, it'd be 250 because you're giving him – you're saying 50 he would perform yeah, the way he yeah. did in 2015. So – I'm making your point for you, which yes. is there's a large subset of these alternate universes that leave you virtually no chance to have a good bullpen. At, and and that, I'm not saying that's the entire undoing of your 2016 pennant chase chances. There were obviously some faults with this team that went beyond having a bad closer. Mm-hmm. But it's not trivial. It's not insignificant. The fact that the Twins were in position to win a few games if they could only nail down the ninth inning and not only did they fail to nail down some ninth innings, they coughed back leads. And you could tell, I mean, it was palpable from being around that team. Maybe not every person in the clubhouse felt this way, but I guarantee you fans of the team watching in April, in May, were wondering, oh, 3-2 lead in the ninth. I do not feel good about it. Where, where is this going to go? That's not insignificant. Like That matters on a very real level when you're talking about 162 games. If they didn't blow those five games early in the season, okay, they lose 98 instead of 103. That's what the math would say. But I'd argue that the effect is bigger than that because after the season just kind of went off the rails, I really feel like it was just, okay, well, now it's a march to the end and we've got to just figure out how to plug and play and get through the season. Whereas if you're in a pennant race, maybe you make some moves differently. Maybe you don't give up some of your better players. Maybe you don't sell at the trade deadline. Yeah. Maybe the the... You know, there's this other alternate universe where your buyers at the deadline and this team flirts with a postseason See, chance. I think, uh, especially for mid and small market teams, where it's really hard to put together dominant five man pitching staffs. If you're in a top seven or eight market, you can go spend a bunch of money. You can go sling it around. You're the Dodgers. You're the Giants. I mean, you're you can afford to stack your rotation with free agents. Cleveland Indians on line one, my friend, for sure. And yeah, that's and not that's, trying to derail your point. No, but but, but it's even more important to build a really really good bullpen, and yes. it's cost efficient. Yeah, you know, you can go out, and I know that we we did a whole podcast about Antonio Bastardo, and he wound up not having a great season. I think he got yeah. injured or something, but it was more about it wasn't as much about Bastardo himself. It was about 
the idea of don't settle for this bullpen. Go out and put together, aside from Glenn Perkins, and if he plays the whole season, then so then awesome. That's gravy. That's helpful. But yeah. go build, and this is how they won games in 02, 03, 04. Juan Rincon, J.C. Romero, all these guys, Eddie Gordado, uh, the Jesse Crane comes along in like 04 or something like that. Go put together a bridge from the sixth inning on and then watch everything else get better. Watch your pitching staff get yep. better because they no longer have to face lineups a third or fourth time. Yep. Watch every watch your feelers get better because they're not exposed to as many batted balls because you're bringing in relievers that ideally have high strikeout rates, right? So, anyways, we've gone long enough on item number three here. We, we can do a bunch more episodes this uh, off season on bullpen pitching and what the Twins need. Winter meetings are coming up in like two months, so yeah. uh, coming up quick here. The Twins are going to have a lot. This is going to be a very, very fascinating off season to me because for the first time since I've been covering the team. You don't really have a guess as to what's going to happen. Hey guys, it's Phil Mackey from 1500 ESPN and one of the hosts of Sports Over Beers, the original 1500ESPN.com podcast where you find your favorite 1500 ESPN personalities drinking beer and talking sports. Pretty simple. Find it on iTunes, Podcast One, and 1500ESPN.com. You know, in the past it was kind of like, okay, well... The Twins could surprise me by putting a bid on somebody like Byung-Ho Park. And I remember that being really surprising. I was like, whoa, the Twins won this bid? Uh, I wonder if some people in the Twins front office weren't surprised by that, too. The fact, oh, we were just trying to show some uh, love to the agent. Yeah. We didn't think we would actually win this guy. <laughs> All right, got to figure this out. Gun. What do we do? So now the Let's I- put Miguel in right. Yeah, well, that might work. Like kind of a hare-brained idea. I knew Pumagallon Whitefield. Might have been some whiskey being passed around the table. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> be a fly on the wall for that conversation. be fun. Um, but to me, uh, the the planning needs to change because I used to sort of have a first guess of what the Twins might do, right? I, like I said, Byung-Ho Park surprised me. But most winners, when Terry was in charge anyways— you kind of look at it and you'd be like, okay, the Twins are going to assess their needs. Here's what I think their needs are. They're probably going to agree with me on most things, but maybe we'll disagree on one or two. But there'll be substantially similar evaluations of what they need to get better at. And then they're going to shop in the bargain bin. They're going to go either sign some bad pitchers or get into like a – uh, uh, second-tier market for trying to fix some of those problems. Some of those problems are going to run out of time and not address, and then they're going to roll the dice on April 1st. It was kind of like, and I don't mean to say they always met, made bad moves, because I, I think Terry Ryan doesn't get enough credit for some of the good moves that he did make. So this isn't a this isn't a crap on Terry podcast. I'm just saying, you kind of had an idea of how the Twins were going to approach it, and the range of end results, like what might be the be- yeah, what might be the best case scenario, what might be the worst case scenario. Way too much hope, like and and it and it goes to show you that they went into the season. This is all you need to know. They went into the season thinking, ultimately hoping that they would build on what they did in 2015, and they lost 103 games. So, unless every one of your major leaguers gets injured and you're playing a Triple A team for an entire season. There shouldn't be that wide of a gap between what you thought was go- what you projected to happen and then what actually happened. Right. I mean, there was a forty win difference between what they wanted to happen, like in the nineties. Let's say th- between a thirty and forty win difference between what they planned to have happen and what actually happened. 
That's egregious. Yeah. The Braves wanted the number one overall pick, and so it's not <laughs> shocking that they lost like 90-some games. And they couldn't and the get The Twins it. beat them by 10 games. Uh, yeah. All right, let's fly through these last two here. Yeah, games. well, number five, simple, but uh, and, and, then, and then we'll talk to two of the more interesting things, the manager and this uh, interesting point that Burt Blylevin brought up. That I, I don't know, it merits conversation at the very least. Uh, first, quickly, the Twins were terrible in the Central Division. That's not news to you. You probably know that. Here are the records, if you care. Against the Tigers, 4-15, and woof. Against the Royals, 4-15, and woof. Against the White Sox, including that win against Chris Sale, 7-12. and Hey, that's not 4-15. and It's amazing. Against the Indians, oddly enough, they were 9-10. and uh, so I, no winning records within the division. They were a 364 winning percentage baseball team on the whole season in the division 316. So like you just got you're giving yourself no chance. If you were a 500 team the rest of the way and you did that against the division, you're yeah. an afterthought. You're an also ran. Forget about it. Fold up the tents and go home. So the optimistic spin is there's some low hanging fruit there. Hey, get better next year by playing better against your division opponents. Okay. That thought in the rearview mirror. Here's my fifth and final thought from that before we do talk quickly about Paul Molitor. Burt Blylevin brought up an interesting point on Twins Radio, actually. They were doing a round table. Yeah, I don't know if you you heard this. There's Twins Radio gotta, on the Sunday. Gotta be honest. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> I was uh, probably enjoying the beautiful day. Well, I was in my car before the— I love the... baseball, but only so much. <laughs> <laughs> and some people have called me a masochist, but even I have my <laughs> limits. I had thumbtacks in my eyes, and I was watching the last three weeks of yeah, Twins baseball no, every sounds, inning. That's really gross. Yeah. I want to live in a parallel universe in which I didn't have <laughs> thumbtacks in my eyes. Burt Blylevin and our guy, Dazzleman, uh, Danny Gladden, brought up this idea that major league teams should start to pay their minor league coaches better. They should pay people at the lower levels who are ultimately charged with developing people like Eddie Rosario, Byron Buxton, J.O. Barreos, yeah. up and down the list. They said, how fair is it that you go sign a kid like Byron Buxton, you give him a multi-million dollar signing bonus, and then you hand him over to it, probably underpaid, overworked, way too many hours a day, uh, manager in rookie ball. And that, they didn't specifically dog on people in the Twins organization, but it was really hard to avoid that sort of tacit implication that currently the Twins don't have a good pipeline in pr- in place allowing these young players to flourish and develop and arrive at the major leagues in their early to mid-20s ready to thrive. I think it, it's a great point. Um, I'm just sort of spitballing here when I say this. I don't have anything to quantify this, but I think the most important levels for coaching, for just sort of one-on-one instruction and uh, developing a player's habits or mindsets or ability to identify things on a baseball field, probably high A and double A, when you start to really weed out the pretenders, you know, like rookie ball, low A, there's a lot of good college players and and good high school players who are coming up. Once you get to high A and double A, you start to really see honed borderline major league caliber arms on a more regular basis as a hitter. And uh, as a pitcher, you start to see hitters who know what they're doing at the plate a little bit more. And so if, you ha- if you're if you sort of, and I, I don't know if the Twins are or aren't, so I'm just, in, generically I'm saying, if you aren't providing top caliber coaches and instruction at the high A and double A level, you're probably, you're probably underserving, especially for the players who have a real shot to go and play in the major leagues, right? I mean, you might have to play favorites in some regards. You're underserving players and probably underpreparing them 
with habits that might be tough to break once they get to the major leagues. And they, they might make it to that point on talent, but if they're underserved and underdeveloped and undercoached, they're going to get to the major leagues and they're going to realize, oh, man, my command, I got away with some stuff as a pitcher in double-A and triple-A yep. with bad habits that, that didn't really you know, come back to bite me because these guys can't lay off some of these pitches, but the major leaguers can. And in my mind, they're not bad habits. Right. It's just what I do. I'll, it's what got me here. I'll never forget, not that this was a bad habit, but just sort of a, an illustration of what I'm talking about, the difference between the minors and the majors. The first conversation I had with Kyle Gibson at his first big league camp, like four, four or five years ago, mm-hmm. like 2011 or 12, and, uh, and he faced David Ortiz and Kevin Euclid back-to-back in an inning. Yeah. I wrote a big column about this. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, very what, good. What was, thank you very much, yeah. what was the biggest difference that you saw – as a pitcher, when you're mm-hmm. facing some of the best hitters in the world in this Red Sox lineup. And he said, in the minors, I throw that little sinker, that two-seam sinker that kind of goes, it's like a, like a tailing in pitch toward uh, right-handed hitters, right? You start it off maybe on the uh, outer or the inner third of the plate. It tails in. They swing. I break their bat. Or they swing and miss, and uh, I win. Yeah. He sa- so these are pitches that hitters in the minor leagues are sawing themselves off broken bats, swinging and missing, on a regular basis, David Ortiz and Kevin Euclid weren't even flinching at yeah. these pitches. No they, pick, they picked up the path of the pitch, they spit on it, and now Kyle Gibson's forced to throw the ball. Oh, I, I guess if I want him to swing at this, I better move it a little bit more toward the strike zone. Well, then guess what happens? Yeah. <laughs> David <So>. Ortiz happens. <laughs> and it's still kind of happening sometimes with Gibson sure. in, the, in the bigs here. So No question. Um, I think that... I, I, and I'm not ready to criticize that, and, and I'll get to what Molitor said about this because I, I actually asked him about this very thing several weeks ago. Um, I'm not ready to criticize the fact that the Twins' player development process is broken. I, I'm not ready to say that, but it's super fair to question that. Is it broken? Right now, the Twins need to be asking themselves that, and if the answer is yes, you need to fix it. That's your job. I don't know that there's an easy answer, but I thought it was interesting that Blylevin and Gladden, two people who are uh, – Gladden, for my money, is one of the better – tell it like it is, this is what I think, former player perspective, here you go, yeah. take it or leave it. For, for me, in the market, one of the better people at, uh, at sort of just presenting his raw, um, informed opinion about this stuff. Bert oftentimes will pull back on that. He's not – Often frontal criticizing until he is. This season he did once or twice where it was like, wow. Actually, Bert, the last two or three weeks, he really I, I got did duck into it. the TV broadcast uh, you know, once in a while, and, and I saw some stuff on Twitter. Bert, probably went after three people. times the last couple That's weeks, I mean. decided, I'm going to go after Dozier's leadership. I'm going to go after the minor league instruction. Uh, went after a couple other things. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I wonder if he he's down to like two-thirds of a season for his schedule. I wonder if this means that he's going to scale even further back or that know. if he knows something. Cause well, I don't know. It's an interesting time to take the gloves off, but I appreciate that he does it, and I think, I think fans and viewers should too. It's so much better to hear Burt Blylevin saying what he actually thinks as someone who's, for crying out loud, a Hall of Famer and like influential yeah. in pitching. To hear his unvarnished opinions is so refreshing, and I think just a hundred times more valuable than sometimes if, if he were to you know put handcuffs on and say maybe what the team would prefer him to say. I, I personally appreciate the hell out of the fact that he will do that from time to time. 
and I just I don't I don't know where it came from, what it's stemming from. If there's one specific player he's talking about, whether it's Boreos getting up here or JT Shagwa, you know, having his share of struggles despite obvious you know loads of talent in that arm. Um, I I don't know, and so I don't even want to speculate. But it was interesting that he went sort of after the player development process. And if the Twins need to fix it, then they need to fix it. Molitor, I asked, I said, you know, you've had a lot of young players contribute, not only last year, but also this year. This year, I'll be honest, not great returns. They're young players who've struggled in any number of the game, whether it's base running, knowing the situation, fielding, strike zone recognition. I could go on down the list, and that's before even talking about the pitching that's underserved you this year. Um, how you feeling about your player development process? And Molitor didn't hesitate one second. Here's his quote. I trust our development people. I think that no matter what you do, whether it's about baseball skill or a mechanic, you try to train those guys down there about the speed of the game and decision-making. But some of those things don't really get cleaned up as well as you'd like until they have to live it. He continued. I, I, I find Molitor's explanations fascinating. Some people mm. think he's dry and whatever. I love the insight that Molitor gives on a daily basis. He says, I can't tell you how many players have said to me through the years, after they got up here, here being the majors, and they say, I remember when you talked about this in the minor leagues, and I didn't really get it, but I do now. And he's talking about the speed of the game. I think that's where I uh, I think that we're talking to pitchers, Molitor said, and running games and containing it and fastball command and base runners' situational awareness, making good decisions and the risk reward and all that. All those things that I know are being taught in the minor leagues. We still have to go through the transition of them doing it up here, which sometimes is not instantaneous. So Molitor really went to bat for the people at the lower levels in the Twins' development process, sure. and having he's gone to been bat one for, himself. And he's gone to bat for the coaching staff, too. And uh, uh, the coaching staff might even be decided by the time we do another podcast next Tuesday. But I, but if you're and I get he's not going to just throw people under the bus left and sure. right. So I totally get that. But they are the worst franchise in baseball. Yep. So if it's not a problem with the developmental pipeline, or if it's not the problem a problem with the current coaching staff or uh, or scouting department that's going and finding players. I mean, it's not nobody's fault, but it's not just like one person or one department's fault. Right. It's not just, well, you know, uh, we'll get them next time. Some bad luck, yeah. Right. And it's also possible that what Paul Molitor, has, who has been a part of this organization exclusively for like 15 years, he's smart, but he's also a part of this organization, this pipeline. That he might not know what this organization's developmental system looks like compared to like the Indians or the Red Sox or the Cubs. Mm-hmm who have great developmental systems, look at some of the young players who've come up through those. How would you know if you never go outside the organization to tap brains or to hire smart people? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. You would think that what what you're doing, what your process looks like is valuable if that's Mm -hmm. the only process that you are privy to. So let's wrap on this point on Molitor. Um, And before we do, if you're a loyal listener of the Touch Em All podcast, please... Please subscribe on iTunes or get us on Podcast One. Uh, having more subscribers helps us get shared with more people. And to be honest, that's good for us. The more people hear, you know, measured, analytical twins' opinions, I think the better. Uh, it's a lot of fun to do it. I know Phil and I both enjoy getting on here and jamming. 
uh, each week about the Twins, and it should get even more fascinating this winter. So stick with us this winter. We love having you around, uh, having having you along for the ride. Uh, please subscribe, give us a rating on iTunes. It would help us out a lot. Thank you so much. I wrote this in my column, Phil, so it might not come as a surprise to anybody who did read that column, but I know there are a lot of people out there who did not. My Molitor opinion, for what it's worth, is that the Twins need to assess what percentage of the problem he was. Now, what I mean by that is the Twins were terrible fielding. I think they were a bad base running team for most of the year, and for the past three or four years, they've been pretty bad at controlling the opponent's running game too. Molitor made a stated emphasis in spring training about those things. This is what we are focusing on fixing this spring to help go from 83 wins to, you know, the low 90s or whatever it is that we need to compete for a wild card spot or the Central Division title. That's our goal. They missed that mark by so many miles that it's not even worth stating. And I I think it's only fair to wonder how much does the manager play into that? I know there are a lot of vocal Twins fans on Twitter who say that it's all his fault and I'm not there yet. I'm not at the point where I say, well, the Twins are bad at this, this, and this, and it's easy for me to point my finger and say that's Molitor's fault. Now, I think the criticism is fair. I think that the inspection of the question is fair. I think Molitor himself would be expecting that. If that didn't happen, then you're not trying to get better. But I think that you can say on I think you can say both of these statements, and they're not conflicting. The Twins were a bad baseball team this year. Bad fielding, bad running, bad at controlling the opponent's run game. All of these things that need to be taught to players. Talent plays a part, yes, but also just coaching and strategy and situational awareness and focus and attention to detail. All of those things play into that equation in my mind. That's true. I also think that it's true that it's possible it's not all the manager's fault. I don't think that I would move on from Paul Molitor if I were making the decision. But I think that it has to be open for the conversation. I think the Twins need to have an honest and frank discussion about how much of this did Paul Molitor play into, how much is he responsible for all of those shortcomings that I just mentioned, and if the answer is a lot— or even if just the answer is non-zero and you think that you could improve by looking a different direction— yeah, I think you probably owe it to your franchise to do that. I'm going to wrap this podcast with a prediction. I think Paul Molitor is out. I think he's out, and I don't think he's going to manage the Twins in 2017. We'll see you next week.